thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. This, uh, see, this section, this segment of our study is on the angels and it, we're going to spend four weeks talking about the holy angels. Um, throughout the study, for those of you who, was, who were with us since the beginning, you know that we've dealt with quite a bit of um, difficult subjects. When we spoke about the covenant, when we talked about the curses of the covenant, when we spoke about how God deal, deals with us and with his people, you know that we've dealt with some subjects were really difficult and demanding. I, was, I have been looking forward to this segment because it is one of my favorites. Nothing gives me, well, after the Blessed Mother, nothing gives me more pleasure than to speak about the, the holy angels. The segment will be focused specifically on the holy angels. I'm not going to be spending much time talking about the demons. I will mention them today, but it will be only briefly. The reason why we need to talk about the angel is because the book of Revelation is full of them. And most of us do not have a really good grounding on who the angels are. Let me start by asking you a simple question. When was the last time you've heard a homily on the angels. Quite an exception, last Sunday. Anyone else? There is a definite silence these days concerning the angels. They're not spoken much of, and they tend to be, to a certain degree, ignored. And this stems from two reasons, the two roots for this. The first one is that Although Luther, who is the father of the Protestant churches, believed in angels, those who came after him do not. Most or many Protestant theologians will tell you that angels are emanations, forces, but they're not beings. So you go and you tell them, well, but in Scripture, the Lord says, the Lord speaks of angels. And he says, well, no, that's a form of speech. A typical excuse, a form of speech. That kind of Protestant theology has actually entered many of the Catholic, Catholic seminarians, where seminarians tend to be taught the same thing. That's one of the reasons why very few priests do talk about angels. 
they're not familiar with them, they do not know them, and hence don't feel the need to talk about the angels and their role in our salvation. The second reason stems from the ecumenical movement. The ecumenical movement is a worthy movement. Its primary uh, reason of existence is to unify all Christians under one name. The Lord wants it, and we must always pray for it and strive towards the unity of all Christians. However, there is a very strong tendency among those who are involved in this ecumenical movement to kind of take the Catholic faith and divide it into two pieces. The piece which is essential, the Trinity, the death, resurrection of our Lord, things like that, and those which are considered to be not essentials, Our Lady, the angels, purgatory, confession, and those are kind of set aside so that we do not we do not uh, upset our separated brothers and sisters. I don't think this is a wise approach. Because at the end of the day, there's no such thing as important and unimportant truth. Truth is one. You can't subdivide it. And I don't think we're really serving our Protestant brothers and sisters and somehow toning down certain subjects and focusing on the others only. Pedagogically, this might work for a certain time, but eventually you have to assert all of the truth. Those two reasons combined provo provoke this kind of deafening silence about the angels. Combine this with the fact that among the New Agers, there is a lot of talk about angels, the wrong way, and you get quite a bit of confusion. What I want to do tonight is teach, teach or or provide you with what the Catholic Church teaches about the angels. What we know to be held for truth, to be absolutely true. We're going to focus about the truth of the angels tonight. And next week, we'll talk about what the angels do to help us in our, in our journey towards heaven. And I will assure you that by the time I'm done with that second lecture, you will be convinced that you will not make it to heaven without your God and angel. It's impossible. It's impossible. Then I will focus the third lecture on one of the most neglected saints in the church, Saint Raphael. How many of you ha do have an active devotion to Saint Raphael? How many of you know about Saint Raphael? Right. That's going to change. By the time I'm done, you will have an active devotion to that great saint. We're going to study the book of Tobit, which very few do tend to read and study. And then the fourth and last lecture will be taken from many of the writings of the saints talking about their own experience with angels. I think it's a fitting way for us to close this study because we will see the communion of the saints in all its glories through what the saints have experienced in dealing with angels. A couple of references for, some references for you on this subject. Um, the first one, which is, uh, as, which is very highly recommended, is called Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma by Dr. Ludwig Ott, published by Tan. Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. This is a very good reference 
to find out what the church actually teaches. And we're going to be going through some of its uh, um, pages regarding angels. A second book, which I also very highly recommend, is a small compendium written by Father Pascal Parente called The Catholic Teaching on the Angels, or The Angels. The Catholic Teaching on the Angels. Very short, brief, to the point. Um, another book that I would recommend, even though uh, it has quite a bit of repetition in it, is by Joan Carol Cruz, Angels and Devils. And in this book, uh, Ms. Cruz not only repeats what the church teaches, but she brings about a lot of little stories and anecdotes regarding angels, which is uh, lively. A book that I found interesting, and I would recommend with certain reservation, is by Mother Alexandra. This one is published by Light and Life Publishing, called The Holy Angels. Mother Alexandra is an Orthodox nun, um, and uh, she writes about her experience with the angels. Very enlightening um, and uh, useful. One book uh, which I will read to you a little excerpt from today is called Under Angel Wings. Under Angel Wings, and it is the story of Sister Maria Antonia, who from the age of four saw her garden angel on a constant basis. And the very interesting thing about this little book, even though it's written in, very simplistic, in a very simplistic way, is that theologically, so far, it's right on. In the way that, that she describes the angel behaving towards her, how he communicates with her, how he talks to her, she's exactly right on, according to what we know of the communication of the angels to us. And I'll read to you a passage from this little book. Wonderful little book. Uh, another one is called also All About the Angels by Father Paul O'Sullivan. Uh, this one is not open because um, I think I have a copy that is already open. I didn't know I bought a book twice. Uh, very good book. Um, and there are some um, CDs which you can find from the site of Opus Angelorum on the angels. Um, Opus Angelorum is a movement that has been approved by the Vatican for the propagation of the devotion to the angels. You can find it on the web, Opus, O-P-U-S, work. Opus means work. Angelorum, A-N-G, E-L-O-R-U-M, Opus Angelorum. You just Google this and you will be able to find um, Opus Angelorum on the web. And they have a series of uh, CDs uh, about the angels, which is also very highly recommended. Now, let's uh, first start with the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In the Catechism, paragraph 328 through 336 is devoted to the angels. And... The Catechism states that the existence of the spiritual non-corporeal non beings that sacred scripture usually calls angels is a truth of faith. The witness of scripture is as clear as the unanimity of tradition. Um, so there is an affirmation that angels, and that's the teaching of the church, and I will, I will uh, quote to you a, a passage that comes from the Fourth Lateran Council, 
1253 and of the Council of Vatican, not Vatican II, Vatican I, where this truth of the faith is also affirmed, that angels do exist and they are persons. A person is a being that has intellect and will. That's what a person is. And those are, the angels therefore are beings, persons, of a spiritual nature. Now, one thing I would like to clear right away is this word spiritual. Spiritual, in this sense, does not mean supernatural. It does not mean supernatural, above nature, in that sense. Angels are not supernatural beings. Angels are natural beings, just as we are natural beings. The difference between angels and humans is that angels are made, their essence is only spiritual. There is no matter involved in their essence. Whereas in our case, our essence has, has a spiritual side and a material side, combined together to make a human person. An angelic person has only a spiritual side. Make sense? So, just because we're made of a spirit and flesh doesn't make us supernatural. Doesn't endow us with a supernatural um, stature. This will take the work of grace. And likewise with the angels. The angels are natural beings which God created in time. So when the universe was created, the angels was cre were created as well. So angels are also being who were created at one point in time. Only God is without beginning and without end. Angels and humans are have a beginning but do not have an end. Right? We we both are immortal, meaning that we will never cease to exist. Humans will never cease to exist and angels will never cease to exist. Now, angel, the word angel means messenger. Therefore, every time we speak of an angel, we're really speaking of the function that those spiritual beings play sometimes in regards to human salvation. But it does not denote their being, their essence. It only denotes one of the functions they play. Now, keep that in mind. Angel really means messenger. St. Augustine says, angel is the name of their office, not of their nature. If you seek the name of their nature, it is spirit. If you seek the name of their office, it is angel. For what they are, spirit. From what they do, angel. So, as purely spiritual beings, angels have will and have in intelligence, intellect. They can reason and they have a will just as we do. That's what separates us from the rest of the animal order. An animal does not have will and does not have intelligence. An animal has instinct, but an animal cannot will to do one thing or the other, as we do, and an animal doesn't have intelligence, the capacity to think. This is what makes us in be, beings in the image of God. Those two faculties. And likewise, an angel has a will and has intelligence.
They are personal and immortal creatures. They surpass in perfection all the visible order. So their, their perfection in the natural order surpasses all the visible order. Make sense? No? Yes? In, their, in the natural order of creation, when God created everything, angel surpasses in perfection all the visible world. So they surpass us in perfection in the natural order, not in the order of grace. Okay? Which is something we're going to talk about a little bit later. What does that mean in a very pragmatic sense? Well, let's think about how an angel moves. We move in a very physical way. I have to have an opening through some door in order for me to move. And furthermore, my speed is limited by what flesh and blood can do. Alright? So, in the, in the most absolute sense, based on what we know today from physics, we cannot move faster than the speed of light. That's the absolute limit we have of moving, the speed of light. So if you think about this universe, where the next closest star is about 50 million, no, 50 light years away, so one light year is the time it takes light, no, sorry, is the is the distance that light travels in one year. You're talking tr trillions of miles. Okay? The next closest star is 50 light years away. Alright? We're limited by our ability to move in this space. Angels, on the other hand, move at the speed of thought. The speed of thought. If an angel thinks of wanting to be in Jupiter, as soon as he's formulated that thought, he is there. If he wants to be back on Earth, he just has to formulate that thought and he's back on Earth. And to be able to understand that from a human perspective, think how in your mind you can recall, or when you're gazing at a, when you're gazing at a picture, you can see all aspects of that picture in one instant. And if you wanted to see some part of it, all you have to do is move your eyes and you're right there. So if you had a picture of all of the United a map of all of the United States in front of you, with one motion of your eyes you can move from one end to the other. Right? Compare that to the way an ant would try to understand the map. An ant is a two dimensional being. There are no three dimensions in an ant, there are only two. There's no height. And you put an ant on a map. And the ant now is trying to comprehend what this thing is, okay? Supposing that an ant had intelligence, it would probably take an ant a lifetime to even figure out what this thing is, let alone being able to use it. And since an ant has only two dimensions, it can't understand a third, it cannot, so to speak, rise above the map to see it from one end to the other. Therefore, if you were to ask an ant, what's the distance between, say, San Diego and Phoenix, the ant has to walk the distance. And given that the ant's memory is limited, if you ask it again, it'll have to do it again. Alright? Whereas for a human being, 
It only takes a glance to be able to do that. Well, now take that and put it in the, in the, in the plan of motion. What we can do by our sight, an angel can actually do by its nature. Not only can the angel move at the speed of thought, he can move so quickly that as far as we're concerned, he appears in, the, in two places at the same time. So those of you who are familiar with computer science will understand the notion of a context switching, how a computer switches from one program to the other. Right? Well, an angel can do context switching even faster because an angel is not limited by matter. Matter doesn't hold him back. So he can literally appear in two places at the same time. One example of this manifestation is when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, you know, and Pharaoh was arguing with Moses, and Moses decided, God decided to give Pharaoh a sign, and Moses let go of his uh, staff, and it turned into a serpent. That was an actual act of creation on God's part. God made a serpent out of the staff. It's a creative act. The Egyptian sorcerers seemed to be able to do the same thing. They put their staff out there and they would turn into a serpent. How could they do that? Only God can create. No one else can. How could the, how could the Egyptian sorcerers turn those staffs into serpents? It was a trick. Nothing more than a trick. A trick that relied on angelic powers. The natural angelic power shared by good and bad angels. All the demons had to do is very quickly grab those staffs and substitute for them serpents. But they can do it so quickly that as far as we're concerned, it's a miracle because of the speed of action. But it is not a miracle in the sense of something occurring outside of the natural order because it is part of their nature to be able to do such things quickly. That explains how, for instance, when Daniel was in the pit of lion, an angel was able to lift um, another prophet who was in Jerusalem and in the blink of an eye bring him over to Daniel for him to give him food and then again bring him back swiftly. From a human perspective, this looked like a miracle that the angel was performing. But again, it is not a miracle. It is something that angels can do due to their nature. And that is why their nature is more perfect than ours. Now, Christ speaks of his angels. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, this quotation tells us that these these angels are ordered to serve Christ and to obey Him. These angels belong to Him because they were created through Him, as St. Paul tells us. For in Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. This is a quotation, I believe, from Corinthian, And I'm going to come back to this quotation. Thrones, principalities, dominions, these are different choirs or orders of angels. We're going to go through the nine of them. 
Now, I should like to point out to you that in the liturgy of the church, angels are always present. Uh, for instance, right before uh, communion is offered, in the Maronite rite, we sing a hymn where we say, round about the altar, all the angels are present. We mention in particular seraphims and cherubims, but we really indicate all angels. And anything that is part of the liturgy, anything that is inscribed in the liturgy, is effectively, infallibly true. Every teaching present in the liturgy is what we call part of the ordinary magisterium of the church. And that again affirms the existence of the angels. So it is dogma that in the beginning of time God created spiritual essences out of nothing. That is part of our belief. And this, is, this was taught in the Fourth Lateran and the First Vatican Council where it is stated that simultaneously at the beginning of time God created from nothing both spiritual and corporeal creation. Now whether this happened simultaneously, meaning the material order was created at the same time as the angels were created, is, can be subject of the debate. But what is not is the fact that they were actually created. Uh, in scripture, of course, the existence of angels is affirmed straight out from Genesis where we find the cherubim who is placed at, uh, to guard the Garden of Eden with the flaming sword preventing, the, preventing Adam and Eve from being able to re-enter the garden. There are uh, many, many passages through scripture where angels are, where the creation of the angels is in, indirectly or directly attested. Uh, for instance, in Exodus chapter 20 verse 11, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them. So in six days God made heaven and earth. And so heaven is not just the universe. It also indicates the heavens where angels were present. Directly in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, For in him, in Christ, were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominations, principalities, or powers. And the tradition affirms the existing of the angels in a unanimous way from the very beginning. Um, and as I said earlier, the liturgy of the church also offers many testimonies. The reason why I'm insisting on this, uh, and you might be thinking I'm beating a dead horse here, but it is important to understand that there are forces at play outside that want us to think that angels do not really exist or they're not important. Okay. So I am, I am focusing your attention on what the church has taught throughout the ages about the angels because it is really important for us to realize that it is a, a clearly taught doctrine that they are persons and they exist. The number of angels is according to scripture very great. Uh, in Hebrew, we speak of myriads, which is millions. Again, um, you'll find it in Daniel 7, in Apocalypse 5, where it's spoken of thousands and of thousands, which is again millions. Uh, my understanding is that uh, St. Thomas teaches there are more angels than there are humans. So the number of angels is very, very great, although no one really knows what the number is, but it is very great. The angels are divided into nine orders or nine choirs. 
Now, this division is not uh, the Fide teaching. It is not something that we are obligated to believe, but it has been constantly used by the fathers and the doctors of the church. And let me re read to you those nine choirs. The first one is the choir of the seraphim. Uh, a seraph means to burn. And uh, you can find a mention of the seraphim in the chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah. And in this specific instance, to burn is taken both in the intransitive and transitive meaning. So they are the burning ones, but they are the ones who can also burn. And that burning by fire is made for love, for the love of God, so that he can instill in us the love of God. In the case of, in chapter 6 of Isaiah, Isaiah sees the throne of God and sees the throne of God surrounded by the seraphim, the six-winged seraphim, with two wings they hide their feet, with two wings they hide their, their um, I believe, their hands, and then with two wings they fly around, and then they are proclaiming, glory, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And then he says, to, he says woe to me, for, I am, I, for I've seen God, and I am, I am a man of unclean lips, living with people of unclean lips. And then one of the seraphim flies from the throne of God, taking a coal, taken from the altar, and he touches the lips of Isaiah and says, Lo, now you're clean. So that's the communicating fire, the communi communicating fire of love that the seraphim is, are capable of. Their first function is the adoration of God. They are unceasingly proclaiming the glory of God. Their first service is to proclaim the glory of God. And by service, I really mean liturgically. I don't mean uh, in a mundane sense. But service, remember when we say, well, we're going to do service? Well, that's not, nothing more than litur liturgy. Liturgy is public service in Greek. That's what it means. To render public service is the root word for liturgy. All right? The second choir is that of the cherubim. We also say cherubim, but I think cherubim is more, more appropriate because of the, of the singular cherub, not cherub. Both can go. What is the origin of this name? Not really clear. Uh, possibly Assyrian or Persian in origin, because in the case of the Assyrian and Persian Empire, they spoke of the karibu or karibu, who are winged bulls or winged lions or winged sphinx, and they were set for the protection of temples. Um, be it as it may, the cherubims are the many-eyed angels. They are the angels of wisdom, but also angels of music. Music is associated with the cherubims. Now, that's really interesting because if you go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, where Isaiah is now writing a sort of a, uh, where he's speaking of the fall of the king of Babylon. He's speaking of the king of Babylon falling. And in this chapter, he says the following. Starting with verse 10, uh, verse 9. The netherworld below is all austere, preparing for your coming. It awakens the shades to greet you, all the leaders of the earth. It has the kings of all nations rise from their thrones. All of them speak out and say to you, you too have become weak like us. You are the same as we. 
down to the netherworld your pomp is brought, the music of your harps, the couch beneath you is the maggot, you're covering the warm. And then, as often, the language switches. And now he's saying something slightly different. He says, how have you fallen from the heavens, O Lucifer, son of the dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who mowed down the nations? You said in your heart, I will scale the heavens above the stars of God. I will set up my throne. I will take my seat on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet down to the netherworld, you go to the recesses of the pit. And as is the case, when the four senses of scripture are used, and the, and the prophet typically used those senses liberally, they will start with the literal sense, and it's very easy for them to move over to the moral sense or to the anagogical sense. And in this case, the king of Babylon is a representative of Lucifer, the morning star. And you heard about the harp. So Lucifer is presumed to be uh, an angel who played the harp, a cherubim, possibly the highest of them. That's the choir that has been most associated with Lucifer. Cherubims are known to be heavenly custodians and protectors of holy places. Um, for instance, in Genesis 3:23, a, a cherubim or a cherubim was the angel who blocked the access to the Garden of Eden. In Exodus 25:18, we find that the cherubims are actually over the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubims will also be found in the temple. So typically, they are associated with places, with, with, they are protectors of holy places. They're also thought to be throne bearers of God. In Isaiah chapter 37, verse 16, we read, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who sittest upon the cherubims, they are the living chariot of God, as we find in Ezekiel chapter 10, and they are spirit of heavenly wisdom. Now, the third, the third choir is that of the thrones, and it is mentioned in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, we know very little about them, other than the fact that they're mentioned. They seem to be thrones, as in the throne, with an S. Um, they seem to be associated with steadfastness. That's the characteristic of the thrones. The reason why I'm giving you quotations is because oftentimes people will tell you, where do you get that from? Where do you get this business of the nine choirs? This is a Catholic invention. In the Middle Ages, you guys came up with it. You guys came up with it. No, it's in scripture. The fourth is that of the dominations or dominions. Again, mentioned in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Very little is known about them as well. The virtues are the, the fifth choir, so we have the seraphim, cherubim, thrones, dominations, the virtues. They are mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, where he mentions angels, powers, and virtues. They are also mentioned in Ephesians 1, chapter 20, uh, verse 21. Um, they seem to be associated with courage. The next one over is powers. You'll find them mentioned in Daniel chapter 3.61, in 1 Peter 3.22, and in Ephesians 
they have an ordered intellect, then the principalities, which are also mentioned in 1 Peter 3.12 and Ephesians 1.21, interestingly enough, in the letter of Jude, principalities are also, are the only angels mentioned as bad angels. So there is, there, there is a tendency to think uh, that um, the bad angels fell from, mostly from the dominations, the virtues, and the powers. Although, um, the, the traditional teaching is that angels fell from all the choirs. The seraphim, the shirobim, all of the choirs. You had angels who actually fell. And then the two uh, last choirs are the one we know most or best, the archangels. That's where you find St. Michael, St. Raphael, and St. Uh, Gabriel. There are archangels. And the last choir is that of the angels, properly speaking, from which most of the time garden angels are taken. So those are the nine choirs of angels. Seraphim, cherubim, thrones, dominations, virtues, powers, principalities, archangels, and angels. I'll say a little bit more about them in a minute. Let me uh, talk a little bit now about their nature. As we said, the nature of the angels is spiritual. Angels do not have bodies. Never had bodies, will never have bodies. There is no matter in the na na nature of an angel. It's purely spiritual. Let me ask you this question. How do we tell each other apart? Matter. It's physical. Right? I may have big ears, a big nose, you may have small ears and small nose, etc. Right? This is how we tell each other apart. Physically. Right? How can we tell angels apart? So you see two angels. Angel A and angel B. You can't see them. Point well taken. Imagine that you were able to see them. Imagine for a second that you're actually able to see those two angels. How can you tell them apart? Good point. I said earlier that in, in the book of Isaiah, seraphims had wings. Do actually angels have wings? No. Because there is no material component in who they are. There's no matter. Wings are material, right? So they don't have wings. Why then do we see them with wings? Because they're trying to communicate something to us about who we are. About who they are, I'm sorry. About who they are. So if... I know it's a little bit difficult to conceive, but how can we distinguish between two angels? Well, obviously, it's going to be based on some spiritual factors, right? There's nothing material there. It's purely spiritual. So what did I say the angels are... Who, who are angels? Angels are persons, spiritual persons, and a person has what? Will and na. Knowledge, intellect, will and knowledge. Therefore, our ability to distinguish angels is based on their knowledge of God. That's how we can tell them apart. Now, why is that important? Because at one point, if you recall, the Sadducees, who do not believe in the resurrection of the dead, come to Jesus and put this question to him. Rabbi? 
there was a woman, there was a man who was married and then he died. And he had six brothers. And each one of them, in turn, married the same woman to fulfill the Mosaic obligation to bring descendant to his brother, and he died in turn. And so all seven of them married the same woman, and all of them died. In the resurrection, who, whose wife shall, which one of them will be her husband? They're trying to trap him. What does Jesus say? He says, you don't understand. In the resurrection, there will not be marriage, and they will not be given in marriage, for they shall be like angels. What does that mean? A popular misunderstanding of this, that you hear often, especially when it comes to little babies who die, is the notion that the baby now in heaven is... All right. What's wrong with this picture? The baby is an angel. What does that mean he's not created as an angel? His nature is human. To say that the baby in heaven is an angel, we're saying now that his nature is angelic. All right. Why is that a problem? What, what, is, what is really troubling in that statement? Resurrection of the body... Decreation, pardon? Yes, that's that's an aside issue where 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 it's one of the pet peeve of mine where everybody who dies is in heaven. That's a different issue, right? Ah, that's the crux of the matter. Thank you. When we say that a baby who dies is an angel, we're depriving. We're actually doing a couple of things. It's a, it's fundamentally a heretical statement. And it's a very deep one. Number one, we're saying that this baby is not having a share with Christ. How do we have a share with Christ? Through our nature. Christ became what? Man. And that's what we share with him. And what is the second problem with this? The second problem is that somehow, because he died and he became an angel... And therefore, he's not yet a human. Therefore, the, the saving power of Christ does not apply to him and keeps him a human. By becoming an angel, we're somehow implying that he doesn't need Christ to be saved. And thus, there's this prevalent notion that every baby who dies, baptized or not, is in heaven. So, let me go back to my question. What does it mean when Christ says, they shall be like angels? I hope by now you're not thinking anymore that when we show up in heaven, God willing, suddenly we're going to have wings sprouting and now we become angels. We don't change our nature, and this is very important. We share in the life of grace of Christ through our human nature. That's very important. What does it mean then that we're going to, we are going to become like angels? Okay. What is the, what, what, what did I say about how, how we can distinguish two angels from each other? Think about that a second and think about humans in heaven who are like angels. How do you distinguish them from each other? Not by their physical trait anymore. That doesn't matter. 
what matters is the state of holiness they have achieved. So whereas now our spirit is subject to matter and is in the background, when I look at you, I don't see your spirit. What do I see? I see your physical form. That's what dominates. But after the resurrection, the spirit comes to the fore. And what you see is the emanation of that spirit. Now, what does that mean? We need to take that a step further to fully understand this, because this is very important. And hopefully after this you'll understand certain passages in the Gospel that seem really strange when the disciples are not able to recognize Jesus. Well, how could they not recognize him? Well, that's why. But let's think about this for a second. Can your physical being deform your soul? Let me answer this question. Can your spiritual, can your physical being, can your, can matter deform your soul? The answer is yes, it can. I'm not saying it will. I'm saying is it possible? Is it possible? The answer is yes. Your soul can become completely deformed or completely heavenly through what? Through physical actions. Right? So the right now the body has, in a very strong sense, influence over the soul. Our will is weakened. Our intellect is weakened. Our memory is weakened. All of these things are fruits of original sin. So now when I say that the spirit after the resurrection comes to the fore, not the body, the spirit, what does that mean? Can your spirit gain control over your body? Yeah. The spirit is willing, the flesh is, is weak. After the resurrection, no more, because now the spirit is in control and the flesh is completely obedient to the spirit. So therefore, you want to walk through a wall, guess what? You control matter. You walk through wall. You want to be somewhere, you think about it. You're there. Have you ever heard of the miracle of bilocation? Being in two places at the same time. It is, it was, it is known of Saint uh, Anthony of Padua. It is known of Padre Pio. It is known of many other saints who were found to be in two places at the same How could they do that? That's already a share in eternal life. This is what is awaiting all of us. That's what it means to be like angels. We share in the faculties that the angels possess today because they're pure spirits, but we who are human, spirit and matter, today cannot do that. But in the resurrection of the death, through our union with the nature of Christ, and through the work that Christ does in us, He makes us sharer with the angels. So therefore, you would not, we would not be able to recognize Mother Teresa if we were to see her today. Because on earth, the way we would look at her was through her physical form. Not anymore in heaven. I hope this also answers one of the most trickiest questions people have about heaven, but they don't ask it. They usually never ask this question. Do people in heaven, people, not angels, people, when, we have, when we're resurrected, do we have clothes on or not? You ever thought about that? Right? 
You, what do you do in heaven? You go to a heavenly store clothes and you order clothes? Are you, you going to do that? No. On earth? Yes. What about heaven? The answer is no. Why? You don't need clothes to clothe yourself. You've got control over matter. And what will clothe you is the emanation of that glory which God gave you. Alright? That's where the difference is. Effectively, all those faculties that people outside the church attribute to UFOs are really qualities of angels. If you notice, this whole hubhub of UFOs came about right when the devotion to the angels went down. Right? It's so str strong in our hearts, we have to replace it by something else. Right? But, but really, the angels are the UFOs. I mean, not identified, identified, I suppose. But that's who they are. The universe is full of them. And we one day will be a sharer in their faculties and their abilities because of the glory that Christ is willing to bestow upon us. That's what's awaiting us. No, what I'm trying to say rather is that the angels have far more control over matter than we do. And then when Christ said we will be like angels, our spirit will come to the fore, we will be seen as God sees us, not as we see each other by the medium of the flesh. And furthermore, our spirit will gain control over matter, which is one of the factors that the angels have today. So we'll be able to do what they do. The reason why angels appear as men is because they need to put on an appearance that makes sense to us. That's the only mode of communication they can have with us when they want to communicate with us externally. Now our guardian angel uses a different mode of communication. And we'll be talking about this later. But when they want to appear exteriorly, they take on a form of a man or a form of a dog. It was well known that um, uh, Don Bosco had a dog that appeared from nowhere. The name of the dog was Gray, because the dog was Gray. And everywhere Don Bosco went, the dog went with him. And there was one day he wanted to do his round, but there were people... You see, Don Bosco worked with a lot of um, orphan kids, and he was gathering them to teach them and educate them, and there were quite a few people who actually wanted to use them as slaves. And they did not like what Don Bosco was doing. So at one point, there were some of those who plotted on killing him. And that day, Don Bosco was trying to, to go on his round, and that dog would not let him go. He showed his teeth at him, and he was absolutely adamant keeping him where he was. He couldn't go. Which, and Don Bosco was really upset, but he could never go. Here's the interesting thing about this dog. This dog stayed with him over 30 years. And so when they asked, when I put the question to Don Bosco, saying, how could you explain this? He said, well, it's probably one of his kids. But the, the, the overall thinking, seeing the behavior of the dog, is that it was an angel who took on the form of a dog. By the way, what I said about angels, with their ability to control matter, to move quickly, is shared by all angels, both fallen and holy. So when the fallen angels fell, they retained all the natural faculties. Their, 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 their thinking is much faster than ours. They, are, they have control over matter. They can move things. We can't. 
and they are much, much smarter than we are. Much smarter. Okay? Now, when angels were created, they were given all their knowledge at once. The, there was, the, angels don't think the way we do. We have to understand things by a process of abstraction. We first th get things through our senses, then we think about it, then we see how things work, and we kind of understand it. That's not how angels think. When you show angels the musical notes, in one instant, an angel will immediately, in his head, have all possible music you can ever compose using those notes. Like this. That's how angels are. Both good and fallen. That's natural to them. It's part of the natural powers. To us, it sounds miraculous. But it's not. It is part of what they can actually do. Angels communicate with, via what we would call telepathy. All an angel has to do to communicate to another angel is to reveal to that other angel that which he wants to communicate to him, and it takes place. It is more perfect uh, manner of communication than we have. And, by the way, it is the kind of communication that our guardian angel wishes to have with us. And I will we'll speak about that more uh, later. A couple more things before we close today uh, as we speak generally about angels. It is also a certain truth that God set a supernatural final end for the angels, which is the immediate vision of God, and endowed them with sanctifying grace in order that they might achieve this end. When the angels were created, they were not created with a beatific vision, meaning seeing God as He is. They were created just as we are, apart from the beatific vision, and they were given graces for them to recognize God and to will to be with Him. God wanted them to will to be with Him. And they had a time of probation, a time through which, through which they needed to think about whether they wanted to be with Him or not. And it is during that time that Lucifer fell. And what caused Lucifer to fall is, of course, not a sin of the flesh because Lucifer does not have a body. So it is an intellectual sin. It is a sin of pride. Lucifer looked at himself and saw how beautiful he was, and he was a very beautiful angel, and he fell in love with that beauty, thereby loving the creature rather than loving God. So instead of seeing how beautiful he was and giving glory to God, he saw how beautiful he was and he gave glory to himself. And Lucifer was a cherubim, so he's much higher, much powerful, much more powerful than an archangel in knowledge and in understanding of who God is and in power. Yet, when he decided to rebel, he said, I will not serve, which became his name. I will not serve. And who answered him? An archangel. It takes courage for an archangel to answer a cherubim. And what did Michael say? Michael, who is like God? Parochially, this would be, who do you think you are? That's what he told him. When the probation ended, those angels who decided to refuse the life of grace with God became known as demons. And those angels who accepted the life of grace with God, we call today angels or holy angels. And this is a definitive state. It will never change. It will never change. 
Why? Because angels were given all the knowledge they need when they were created. Unlike us. We think and we go this way, then we, oh no, I don't want to do that anymore. We change our mind. We change our mind. Angels don't change mind. There's no change of mind in the angels. So when they made a decision, it was made and it was forever. So when Lucifer said, I will not serve, that was it. Forever. Forever. And hell exists forever. And ever, and ever, and ever. And hell is the truth of our faith that we must hold to. It will never go away. There's no end to hell. In fact, um, I should like to mention this to you. Origen and his followers believed that there would be a restoration of all things, according to which the damned angels and men, after a long period, will be reestablished in grace and returned to God. This was rejected at a synod of Constantinople in 543 as heretical. So this teaching is completely heretical to think that, oh, hell is only for a certain time. No, it's forever. It will never go away. Now, a couple more things I want to say about the bad angels, and I'll say it today, I will not repeat it again. The devil possesses a certain dominion over mankind by reason of Adam's sin. The devil possesses certain power over mankind by reason of Adam's sin. How does it, and this is defeated, this is an infallible teaching. I'm not making this up. How does that uh, power or dominion um, express itself? Well, first of all, Christ designates the devil as the prince of this world. St. Paul calls him the god of this world. And... And the way he does that is that the, the, the evil spirit seeks to, to do moral injury to mankind through temptation. The first way he will attack is through temptation. And most of the temptation at, at the passion level. He will induce your passions. Okay? So one thing I will say to you, those of you who have dreams, I dreamt this and I saw this and a Blessed, Mary, Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to me and St. Joseph and this and that and the other. Be very careful. Very, very careful with those dreams. Those of you who sit down and pray and suddenly you have a warm, fuzzy feeling, you feel good, be very careful. I would recommend to you that anytime you have an extraordinary event, something really strange or out of the ordinary, before you infallibly declare that, number one, God gave you that, that it's a miracle and you're a saint, I would recommend very strongly you go to a priest and you say, Father, that's what happened. And listen to what the priest will tell you. Hopefully you'll find a knowledgeable priest who knows about these things. And whatever the priest tells you, obey. And don't say, oh, wow, what does this priest know? I know better. Here we go again. I'm my pope. All right? Don't do that because he knows how he tempts us through lack of humility. Okay? He goes to our passion. He will incite anger. He will incite futility. Vanity. The tongue. The tongue. Where we start talking about people without even knowing what we're talking about them. We just talk. That's the one way he, can, he, he will attack us. That's the favorite way he will attack us. The second way is that the devil has control over nature and he can use nature to harm us. Not everything is an accident made by men. He can do that. He has that power, and um, it is important for us to be aware of it, not, not to, again, not to fall on the other extreme. Well, oh, I hurt my toe, it's the devil. You know, my, my head hurts me, oh, it must be the devil. Okay. 
we have to be very careful and wise just to know that it exists. How do we protect ourselves? That's an important question. You protect yourself in three ways, which I'm going to tell you right now. Way number one, confession. Not communion, confession first. You can go to communion and you set a moral sin, it does, it, it does you no good. In fact, it's worse. So first, confession. And my recommendation to you, however time you're going to confession right now, double it. Double it. If you're going once a year, go twice. If you're once every six months, go every three months. Get down to a point where you're going every week to confession. I cannot stress this enough. Weekly confession is your most, is your strongest weapon and is the best thing to prepare you to receive the Eucharist, which then will transform you. So confession, the Eucharist, and then sacramentals. Make sure you have holy water at home. If you don't, get it. Make sure you have a priest to bless your home. If you don't, invite your pastor. Make sure you have miraculous medals. Our Lady didn't appear and gave us a miraculous medal for nothing. Make sure you have holy pictures in every room. And make sure to pray. Do these things and don't worry. Yes, but that was Satan as a sin of one who caused scandal. Not as in Lucifer. That was a different meaning of it. Alright? So, in summary, angels exist. They are spiritual beings. They are higher and more perfect than we are in the natural order. When we rise from the dead, we will be like them. Demons exist. They are bent, they are hell-bent on our destruction. But, as Isaiah said to his servant, there are far more on our side than against us. There are far more good angels than bad. And the last thing I want to point out to you, after what I told you about their natural abilities, imagine how far from us a seraphim can be, how high he is compared to us. Now I want you to reflect tonight and throughout the week on one thing only, on a title given to Our Lady, Queen of Angels. I want you to, to try to see Our Lady through the eyes of the angels. She is their queen. In the order of nature, the lowest among all of them. And yet, she's their queen. Reflect on that. And God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.